Good evening, good evening. Uh, my name is Jason, and I'm a pastor here at the house, and it's good to be with you. Thanks for coming out right before spring break. Um, I'm really excited to get to uh, preach the gospel to you tonight from the Gospel of Mark. Um, I want to begin this evening uh, by thinking about this image um, real quick. Tonight, um, in this passage, I'm stealing uh, this image uh, from one of my heroes, Henry Nouwen. Uh, if you know me, I've got a lot of heroes. I like it that way, and I commend them to you. Um, but Henry Nouwen is uh, probably, if there's one author I'd recommend reading while in college, it's probably him. Um, anyway, this is an image um, from one of his books. And this is uh, somebody holding a cup. I want you to imagine doing that, like holding a cup between your hands. Uh, so actually, we do this with me. I'm going to ask you to do this a couple times tonight. I want you to put your hands out. Imagine, it's going to be weird to call it a coffee cup at first, but because it's not, I don't want you to imagine coffee's in it. But, um, but for me, that's kind of what I do on a cold day with a really warm coffee mug as I hold it tight, trying to steal all that warmth, you know, from the cup. I want you to imagine you're holding like a, a good-sized cup like a mug with both hands, and, and look inside that cup. Imagine that what's inside of this cup is your life, with all of its contours, like all the good, all the bad. Inside this cup is all of the trauma and all the joys, all the satisfaction, all the desolation, and look in it. This image of holding a cup is going to be a really good metaphor for us of what it looks like to encounter Jesus and to be invited into his way of life. This semester we've been talking about responding to the encounters of Jesus that, that, people has, uh, that, that Jesus has with people in the gospel accounts. And in this encounter we're looking at tonight, I want us to linger on this question that Jesus asks his disciples, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink. Let's pray and we'll get into it. Father, um, would you send your spirit right now to draw near to us? Lord, you know what, what, what you said in history, what your friends said to you. You know the words that you've prepared for me to say tonight. You know how hard it is for us to look at the fullness of our lives and not flinch or look away. You know how hard it is for us to invite people and you know how hard it is for us to just say yes to the life you've given us. You know, Lord. So draw near to us and your spirit tonight. Uh, specifically that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In our passage of scripture tonight from Mark chapter 10, Jesus is making his way toward Jerusalem. And the scriptures tell us that the people who are around him are terrified, they're afraid. Because Jesus has been telling them that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be uh, mocked, he's going to be beaten, and he's going to die. And this is the third time Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. And every single time he tells them that he's going to die, they push back just a little. Surely you don't have to suffer, Jesus. Surely greatness in your kingdom looks like something else, right? Surely we can have power rather than giving up power, right? It can't be that bad, Jesus. Pep talks, encouragement. Every time Jesus tells his friends that he's going to have to die, they push him back a little. They don't want to descend into that place. It's so uncomfortable for them. This is a really silly comparison. I just didn't want to overthink this. All right, but imagine you got involved in the house like your freshman year. And imagine for the next you know, three years, you've been pouring out your life in and through this ministry. You, you've been um, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to other people on this campus. You've been making disciples of him from people, uh, your peers and people behind you. You've been learning from people in front of you. 
You've been developing as a leader. You've been growing in Christ's likeness in this place. You've been risking intimacy. It's, it's, so much of your life has been in and around this place. Imagine that. And imagine your junior year, I say to you, look, I know that there's 10,000 students on this college campus who are not involved in a college ministry and who are not meaningfully connected to any local church. I know that. But... I really believe that part of the way forward for us is to actually close down the house and let some new expression of the church come. Because, hey, this isn't supposed to be here forever. This isn't equate to the church. I don't need you following a brand into the kingdom of God. But this is the place that you've been given your life to, so to speak. And I want you to imagine how confusing that might be for you if you've been involved in this place for three years you probably wouldn't want to see it end, right? I mean, silly comparison, but these guys had given their lives to following, that's not like passive-aggressive way to be like, wink, wink, six weeks, we're closing the doors. I just was thinking of an example. Uh, that actually happened with a previous director. Didn't, Kirsten, didn't he, wasn't he like preaching and said like, if I ever leave, and then like the next semester, he's like, also I found a job over the summer. You know, <laughs> that's not... That's not happening. Okay, anyway, I got to move. I got to move. All right, so listen, these guys, these disciples of Jesus had given their lives to following Jesus as their Savior, and now he's telling them that he's going to die. Can you imagine how they would feel? Let's pick up our text. Um, Nia, if you would, let's start with, uh, this is from Mark chapter 10. Open your Bibles, get there, get familiar with the word um, in your own hands, um, your phone or otherwise. Mark chapter 10. Second book in the New Testament, and you can count to 10. I hope you're in college. We're going to start at verse 35 right here. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, to him, and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. All right, so get this. Jesus tells them that he's going to die. And they say, Could you do us a favor? Like, I don't know how Jesus felt in that moment, but I know how I'd feel, right? Like, maybe you guys don't really care about me, right? Or maybe you didn't hear me. Maybe you don't understand me. Maybe you don't believe me. I just told you that I'm going to die. And you're asking me if I can do you a favor? But Jesus is so humble, he did not respond to them like I would have responded to them. He says to them, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Even in the midst of what we know was so hard for him. He wants to address the desire of his friends. He's exampling for them what he's about to teach them. He has come to serve. Let us sit at your right hand and at your left hand, Jesus. You see, they believe he has some kind of power. That he might be able to accomplish what he's intending to accomplish. They believe that his kingdom is coming. These two disciples, James and John, they've got a high view of Jesus. Let us sit at your right and left hands. We want to be there, kingdom comes. Let us sit at the seats of honor. These men have a high view of Jesus. Notice that they're asking him for seats of honor in his kingdom, and they believe that he can do it. They have a high view of Jesus, but a misunderstanding of his kingdom. A high view of Jesus, but a misunderstanding of what all this means for them. You may say that you love Jesus, you may ex and you may love Jesus. You may exalt him and lift him up, but do you know what he's offering you? Do you know what it looks like to be great in God's kingdom? It's possible that you have a high view of Jesus and you don't understand what he's offering you. Let us sit at your right and left hands in glory, Jesus. Let's pick it up in verse 38, if you would, Nia. Jesus says to them, you do not know what you're asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am, I love that, by the way. He doesn't say you can do it. They said we're able. He doesn't say you can do it. He just says that you will. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten, meaning the other friends, the other disciples, the friends of James and John and Jesus hanging around, when the other ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus doesn't necessarily condemn them for asking the question that they asked, can, can we have these places of honor? But he does tell them that they don't know what they're asking for. And how often this is true for all of us, friends. Like we can just take stock of the prayers which have actually been prayed by those of us in this room over the past year. How many of us have no clue what we're really asking for? We don't know what tomorrow brings and we're asking God to deliver on things which are months or years or, day or decades out. We don't know how to manage our own lives very well, but we pray to God that he would bring somebody else into our lives. We don't know how to be faithful with 20 bucks, but we're praying that we can make hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands. We don't know what we're asking. And, and now we come to this question that we're going to spend most of our time focusing on tonight. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? This is the metaphor Jesus uses. Jesus, we want to sit at your right and left hands when you're enthroned. We would love to have seats of honor and glory with you in your kingdom. Friends, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? All right, get this. Throughout most church history, Christians have viewed the last week of Jesus' life before the cross. Okay, we call it Holy Week. That last week of his life, Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey the celebrations that happened around him, the putting on of a crown of thorns, the covering with a robe, the exalting of Jesus on a cross. Christians have understood this to be a coronation ceremony. This is the enthroning of a king. P people of God, this, this is what your king looks like. This is what the posture of God is toward you. I don't know what image you have of who God is when you walk through the woods and you look at trees. I don't know what image of God you have when you check your Facebook wall or you don't use Facebook, your Instagram stuff and then TikTok, sure, and other things, when you do those things. I don't know what you think God is, or what your parents told you God is like. When Christians have seen Jesus on the cross, they've understood this to be the picture of their king. The, the throne is a cross, and on the throne is a slain, sacrificial lamb. And to his right and to his left in these places of honor are outsiders and sinners. On his right and on his left are people who deserve what he did not deserve, and those are the very people that he welcomes into the kingdom. This is a coronation ceremony. You want to sit at my right and left hand, but do you even know what you're asking? What's filling Jesus' mind at this moment had to be his own execution on the cross. Are you guys really asking to be hung up next to me? Of course, the other disciples get indignant with James and John. And you know why they're indignant. They didn't think, uh, how dare that these guys think that they have the right to sit at the right and left hands of Jesus. We want that too. They're not indignant because these disciples aren't compassionate 
for Jesus in his hour of suffering in this moment or his, his, his reflection on his, the fact that he's going to die. They're indignant because they want the seats of honor. And so Jesus is looking at this motley crew of people through whom he's going to establish his church and bring his kingdom in such a way that the gates of hell can never prevail against his kingdom. And he looks at them and he gives them a corrective understanding of what the kingdom looks like. So let's keep going. Let's see how he ends this. Do you understand what you're asking? And then he tells them some of what his kingdom looks like in verse 42. You got the next slide, Nia. That'd be great. And Jesus called them to him. Come here. And he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of Gentiles lord it over them. And they're great. that means people who are not the Jews at the time, the Hebrew people. Any, anybody that's just normal in culture is what he's trying to point out. How the rulers of people lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How do people in positions of power in our world use their power? What's the norm? For people who hold positions of power and authority, like the leaders of Jesus' day, don't our leaders lord their power? They use it, they exercise it with tremendous authority from their positions of power, often even keeping safe distances from places of suffering and serving in this world. How many people in positions of power fundamentally live out the life of service? And coming under others. Jesus, in his tremendously paradoxical way, says, whoever really wants to be great among you must become a servant. Which one of you among my disciples is serving the other people in this community the most? Which one of you is serving each other the best? That's the greatest. In my kingdom. There's no way in the first century world that a servant would have been considered great by anybody. Jesus flips their understanding of greatness on on its head. If you really want to become great, become a servant. I don't really know what a fair comparison is for that. I really struggled to try to come up with one because right now we live in this moment where we we don't want to acknowledge or, or, um, that that may be the wrong word, we we don't want to agree or, or think that there is really any hierarchy that everyone here is equally great, right? And so, like, the person bagging groceries is just as important as the person who's a doctor. And we think both jobs are equally dignified. I think we're fighting for that right now in this cultural moment. So it's actually really hard for me. I don't want to throw, like, a job under the bus in this moment, okay? But I'm trying to think of, like, some role in our society that no one really thinks is that great right now, okay? And almost any answer I give is going to get me in trouble. So i got to be careful. I'm just going to use uh, the Greek word in this case. So it... it because that's just easy for me to blame it on the Bible. Um, Jesus uses the word servant, which that word shows up in the book of Acts. Many people think that's the beginning of, of this office in the church called the deacon. Um, the word he uses, servant, it meant like a server at a restaurant, a, a person who waits tables. Okay? So I, just imagine, for example, Jesus said, if you really want to be great, you really want, I want you to wait tables for the rest of your life. If you really want to be great, I want you to be a line cook. If you really want to be great, I want you to bag groceries. Something like that. I mean, you, you see what I'm saying? Like, but imagine we all agreed that there's an s- intense stratification and like busser is like the lowest. And Jesus is sort of throwing that at them, right? And then he doesn't stop there. He takes it deeper. He goes to the next thing. He then says, um, uh, 
sorry, I have wrote some funny words down here that I'm trying to figure out how they fit. Okay. Um, he then says, you must be a slave to all. Not only a servant, but you must be a slave to all. This is very, very Hebrew. If you read the Bible, you'll come across this a lot, where one thing gets said and then the next thing is kind of like it, but intensifies it. That's a very Jewish thing to do. It's throughout the whole Bible this happens. Whoever is serving you is the greatest in my kingdom. Whoever really wants to be first, whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. And although Jesus probably didn't have in his mind chattel slavery in the West like we know it and think about it today, in the first century world, slaves were not persons. They didn't have rights. They didn't have dignities. This is an utterly confusing thing that Jesus would have said. If you, if you want to be first in my kingdom, be a slave to all. If you want to be great, become a servant. I know there's a temptation when Jesus says things like this to poeticize it, to make it seem like poetry, uh, to roll our eyes or just think it's spiritual talk. But what if Jesus really means something like this? Like each of us in this room right now, I know, I know it's different, but each of us has an operating understanding of what the great life would look like. What would, your, what would your life, if it were great, look like? And what if Jesus' definition of greatness doesn't align with yours? And there's the kicker. Jesus doesn't sell this idea by telling them the merits of it. You see, if you're a servant and you're a slave, then this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and it's going to be better for you. He doesn't tell you to live like this because here's all the benefits. Here are the five things that will change your life if you experience a certain kind, and you'll experience a certain kind of flourishing if you begin to live like a servant or slave. No. He says, you should do this because I do this. That's why you should do this. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. This is, as a ransom for many, this is one of the, by the way, this is one of the most important verses in Mark's gospel. It's also one of the most important verses in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus, out of his own mouth, tells us some of what is happening on the cross. On the cross, Jesus is bringing people back from death. While we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. He gave his life for others. This is what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. This isn't just what people in God's kingdom do. This is what the king does. The very king of this kingdom lives this way. If you want to be like the king, what do you think that means for you? If you want to live in the kingdom of a king who gives his life away, what do you think it looks like to be a citizen of that kingdom? Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grabbed, to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the nature of a servant. So if I want to be like God, how does that fit clamoring for a seat of honor and trying to grab a hold of this thing? Do you see how counter to the kingdom that is? You want to be great? I don't know if you know what you're asking. You will drink this cup, and in my kingdom, greatness looks like serving. It looks like coming under people, not lording it over them. This is what I do. So this is what I'm inviting you into. This is the cup that I'm inviting you to drink. He offers you this 
way of life by saying, look at me, this is what I do. And if you want to be like me, trust and live like me. Drink the cup that I drink. Earlier, I had you imagine that you were holding a cup. And in this cup, I asked you to imagine that it was full of your life, of all the joys and the sorrows. It's your life, not somebody else's life. It's not a different life. It's not, a, it's not a, a different version of your life. It's your life. Do that with me again real quick. I'm going to have you do a bunch of these little hand exercises here as we end the sermon. Hold your hands together. Cup them together. And imagine in the midst of your hands is your life. You might wish that this were, there were a different life in here. That you had somebody else's life. Maybe you wish that or that your life was different somehow. A word of consolation. Jesus knows what that's like to wish that this was different. Jesus had a cup he was holding too. And alone with the Father, just moments before he was arrested, Jesus asked for another cup. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And I know sometimes, if you've been in church long, maybe you've heard a sermon that's lifting up and praising Jesus for this, not my will, but your will be done, and that ought to be lifted up and praised. It's a, man, we're going to double down on that in a second. But don't miss Jesus, his real struggle in his humanity. I want another cup. Jesus holds his cup before the Father, and then he lifts his cup to his lips, and he drinks it to the last drop. If you would be great in my kingdom, serve like I serve. If you would be first, be last. If you want to be like me, then be like me. Hold your cup, lift it, and drink it to the last drop. We may want another cup, but encountering Jesus often means that he's inviting us into something surprising. Something which we didn't even know how to ask for and which we didn't even know that we could want. Like, for example, holding your own cup, lifting it, and drinking it to the last drop, or metaphorically, holding your own life and lifting it up and sharing it and then fulfilling it by saying yes to whatever God has for you in your life. Friends, what if God doesn't want you to become somebody else? What if he doesn't need to edit your history to bring you joy? What if he's delighted to receive you as you are and bring you with whatever is currently in this cup into the fullness of life? The cup that Jesus drinks, what that means when he says, are you able to drink what I drink, is are you able to accept the life that has been given to you and the calling which has been given to you and to live it to the fullest? The cup that Jesus drinks is not looking for an other way but saying yes to the Father's will for your life. If you want to drink the cup that Jesus drinks, it means saying yes to the life and the calling that God has given you. It means holding your cup. It means lifting your cup. And it means drinking it to the last drop. And so for some of you tonight, and I was, I was thinking about this because it, the invitations of Jesus in this passage of Scripture are really intense and, and broad in a way. Serve. Give up your life. And there's a lot of work that... that has to go into sort of trying to figure out how to manifest that for where you are in your life today. What would it look like for you to begin to to, to learn from the master how to live like the master? 
to recognize that he is marshalling the resources of his kingdom toward you at this very moment in order that you might live like him with your roommates and with your families and with your money and with your free time and with your schooling and all these things. But many of us are online, swiping, and many of us are looking over our shoulders at other people. We're looking at our parents. And we, we, we have these, we, we're looking at every other cup but our own. Never stopping to consider what God has actually given us and what it might look like for us to drink this one to the fullest. I think this metaphor of a cup might be helpful because there's a few different sort of places to pause just for a minute to consider how God might be inviting us to say yes to him and to enter into his kingdom in the way that he's called us to enter into his kingdom. And so for some of us tonight, the invitation is simply this, hold your cup. For some of us, that's the invitation. Take in your hands the fullness of your life. All of the victories and failures, all of the wounds, all the joys, all the mendings, all the hopes and despairs. Take your family in here, your relationships in here, your strengths, your weaknesses, you. Take that into your hands, look inside of this, and behold the life that God has given you. You may not like it, but it's the only one you've got. And it's the very one God has given you. Hold it. God finds you and your life precious, and no one else can live it. It is yours alone, and it is yours to hold. So hold it. And, and how can you drink this cup if you don't hold it, friends? We hold our cups because Jesus, before the Father, held his. He examined his life. And even when his friends kept telling him, I don't know what your friends tell you, but Jesus knows what this is like when his friends don't give him very good wisdom. Jesus, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. But he, the scriptures tell us, it, it, actually the prophecies tell us that at some point he was going to set his eyes like flint on Jerusalem. That he looked long and hard at the fullness of the life that God had put before him. And he said, yes. Hold your cups. And then we lift our cups. And for some of you, this might be where you are. Maybe you've been taking stock of your life. Maybe you've been looking at all the contours of your life and learning how to say yes to it. Maybe it's lifting it. And then we lift our cups because Jesus lifted his. Think of it like this. Think of it like a toast. We don't just hold our lives, we celebrate them, as crazy as that may sound. I think there's a certain way that we affirm each other in very superficial ways all the time. You look good in that, heart, you know, whatever, okay? But like, what would it look like, what would it look like for me, to, for you, and what would it look like for me to take stock of the ways that I've been wounded, of the things I've overcome, of the things I've yet to overcome, for us to sit around a table together and for me to say, man, you know, today I spent an hour, I did, I did, I spent an hour on the phone with a friend of mine who was helping me work through some just turmoil in my heart that somehow connected to my family of origin, to my marriage today, and I was just a wreck today in my heart about some of this stuff. I needed a friend to walk with me in this. What would it, what would it look like for me to take the, the abuse in my family and, and, the, and the drug use in my family and the poverty in my family and the overwhelming amount of marriages in my family? My, two of my daughters last night were laughing because they have five sets of grandparents. And I was like, I know, I'm sorry. And one of my daughters said, it's all because of you, daddy. And I was like, <laughs> you know, and she was laughing, but I was like, you know. Uh, and it's not because of me. That's not my fault. But that is, 
that's a part of my life. There's other things that are my faults that are also a part of my life. What would it look like for me to affirm all of that? Not because I think it's all great, but because it's the only life I have. I don't have another one to share with you. I don't have another one to celebrate. Are there other desires here? Yep, that's in the cup too. Are there things I want mended? Yep, that's in the cup too. And like a toast, I lift that up. Even with all the chaos and the damage and the bruising and the mess that so many of our lives are, we lift our cups and we say, this is the only life I have. And if God is going to meet me, if God is going to redeem me, it's going to be in this cup. And if you and I are going to meet each other, if we're going to be a part of each other's stories, if we're going to love one another and serve one another, it's only going to be out of the cups we have, not of the ones we don't. I don't have another one. Some of you, some of you holding your cup, friends, the invitation is for you to lift it up, to let others in, to, to, be, to risk being known and loved, to, 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 to reject, uh, you know, I don't know, I, this metaphor is weird, but like pouring a little bit into a prettier cup and it looks like a natty light, you know, or something, and, and, and trying to find intimacy that way. Anyway, that's not in the notes, but there, that's free. Okay. Um, all right, listen. This, is, this, of course, is where this goes. Finally, Jesus drinks his cup to the bottom. This is precisely what we're invited to do with our own lives is go with Jesus to the bottom of our cups. What would it look like for you and I to realize that the life that we've been given has been given to us on purpose? That the only way to find, this is so strange, this is so the way of Jesus, that the only way for your cup to stay full is for you to try to empty that sucker. To use it. Because what it means for me to drain my cup to the last drop means for me to look at all the things which God has given me and done in my life, all the contours of my existence, and offer it up in service to others and in love. If this cup will not pass from me, Father, unless I drink it, then your will be done, and I drink it. This is the cup which has been given me to drink. We want our cups, our lives, to be full, to be overflowing, and we want that drink to go down smooth, and there is a way. It's the way of Jesus. It's emptying your cup and trusting him to fill it. So I don't know where you are right now. I really don't. Each one of, and some of you I do, some of you I know, but generally speaking, I don't know where you are right now. Maybe is, is God inviting you to pay attention to the life that he's giving you, to hold your cup and look into it? Maybe he's inviting you to lift it up and invite other people in to celebrate your life, to risk vulnerability with each other, to risk being fully known and fully loved or rejected. That's a reality. Jesus, in his moment of need, if you, th- th- that moment he was before the Father asking for another way, you know what he did with his friends? He asked them to pray for him. You know what they did? They fell asleep three times. That blows my mind theologically. I'm not really sure what to do with Jesus wanting us to pray for him. But that's a thing. Uh, and, he's, and, and he's so anxious and sorrowful and, and that he's sweating blood. And he says, will you please pray for me? And they just keep passing out. And how lonely he must have been. How lonely he must have been. So part of the risk isn't, it's the only way you're going to be fully known and fully loved. But of course, one of the reasons we dodge it is because sometimes people don't love us. People don't know us really well. And so even being loved when you're not known well, it's fake. It doesn't land anywhere deep. All of us in the end, of course, are invited to drink this and to say yes to whatever God is calling us to in our lives. 
If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, it's likely that you don't know what you're asking for. <laughs> because, you're asking, because what you're asking for really is to hold this cup and to lift it up and drink it to his last drop. And that means to be a servant of all like Jesus. And who among us is clamoring for that and chasing after that? Maybe, friends, maybe some of you in this room, I, this is really true, some of you in this room are not asking to be great in the kingdom of God at all. And this whole sermon is a bit strange because you're not like James and John saying we want to be great in your kingdom. Maybe the jury's still out for you. And it's a funny thing to invite you in in a sermon like this because the kingdom of God looks so counter to the kingdom of the world that if you've heard me right, what I've said is that if you want to follow Jesus, it's going to end up looking something like the cross. That's the kind of life Jesus is inviting you into. And who signs up for that? Nobody wants to drink a cup if it's all bitter. And Jesus doesn't make petty promises. He doesn't have slimy sales pitches. One of my favorite things about the stories of him in the Gospels is every time somebody, not every time, but it's a lot of the times people say, I want to follow you, Jesus. He stops them. And he says, really? You should consider the cost. Because he cares about you. What's interesting to me is the invitation, the real attractive thing, so to speak, is actually that the king of this kingdom lays his life down for you. That he serves you and he wants to call you his friend. That the king of all creation wants to outdo you in honor. I know that the religions of the world, I know the pop psychology of the world, I know the good motivational speeches of the world all talk about any number of things to gain a certain degree of positivity and honor. We sort of have all these ways that we negotiate this like tit-for-tat relationship. I scratch your back, you scratch mine, so to speak. We affirm one another. It's so interesting. I don't know what your image is of Jesus. He, he, he doesn't play that game, but neither does he play the game of, of world religions that talk about a God who is distant and far away, who's disappointed in us, or who doesn't like us. Some of you have even been taught that God loves you but doesn't like you, and that's, that's a bad word. That's not true. It's not true. Jesus doesn't move toward things he doesn't like, friends, like this. He, he loves the things that he has made. He's not far off and away. The king of this kingdom is, you will, you will never beat him at service. You will never beat him at outdoing you in honor. You will never find a place where he hasn't already beaten you to the submissive punch. He is more submissive than you've ever been. But none of us imagine God like that. Even if we come to the Lord's table every single week or daily in some traditions, and when we go, Christ's body broken and his blood shed, it's still like, God, I mean, like, I know you don't like me. I know I've got a journey this whole distance to get backed into your good graces or something. You will never outdo him, ever, in this posture, ever. The king of all creation wants to outdo you in honor in this way. And just maybe, for those of you that don't necessarily know what it's like to be part of the kingdom of God or don't know if you want to be in or follow Jesus or something, maybe it's the... It's God's, if God's people would live the way Jesus lives, maybe you would want a seat at the table. Maybe if everyone in this room who was after Jesus tried to outdo each other in honor, maybe if we didn't keep saying that's not my responsibility, but started seeing the whole of God's creation as a thing that we are called to love. Jesus said a slave to all, friends. That we're racing each other to the bottom to lift everything up 
That's the call that Jesus has on our lives. And for those of you who are not yet following Jesus or who are standing at such an arm's distance away, I've got to wonder if the people of God begin to live like him, if that would be way more attractive for you. We're about to come to the table in just a moment, but before I do, I want to invite us to take a moment of silence and to consider how the Holy Spirit might be at work in our lives. I, I, I really do think, friends, that just meta- metaphorically as we've been walking through this image of the cup tonight, I really think that there's this, this place of entry maybe for, for all of us in this room either at holding and taking stock of our lives, holding this cup. Henry Nouwen says that entertainment, literally the word actually means in its etymology, it literally means to hold you in between things which really matter. That's what entertainment means, is to hold you right in the middle of a bunch of things that you probably ought to be doing. You know? and we spend so much time distracting ourselves, so much time not attending to our lives, that for many of us, I actually think this is actually the place. It's for us to just hold it. You actually can't do that without some silence. To pause and reflect on who you are, who God has made you to be so far, how far he's brought you, all those, some of you, that's the invitation is for you to hold that and to know that Jesus too is holding his cup. And he, didn't, he wanted a different one. And for some of us, it's lifting it up and inviting others to share in this. And, you, and it's hard to do that without some words. I don't know how to invite you in if I don't use some words. So if, if, you, if your invitation, maybe you've been holding it, is to lift it, you're probably going to use some words to extend some vulnerability and to risk some of that. And then, of course, for all of us in the end, for sure, it's drinking it. What does it look like for you to say yes to the life that God has actually given you right now? To say yes to it. To not want another way, but to say, God, maybe you know what you're doing. What is my role to play in this life that you've given me? And let me drink that to the bottom. So let's take a minute, um, and I'll, I'll pray for us when we're done, and we'll come to the Lord's table together.